Warning! The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard, or believed to be true, about how the human body works, and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy! This World Cup fact for the female soccer players is, and if you're following any of the news, you might be hearing that there, is, there seems to be an epidemic of knee injuries in the female soccer players. If you spend any time listening to the sports talking heads, they want to blame the rash of injuries on the anatomy or the physiology of the female soccer player. But we need to take a moment and think about it. What's the logic of this explanation? What might be the culprit? Let's take a look at three common factors that might come into play as it relates to the injury epidemic, or if there even is an epidemic, for knee injuries in the female soccer player. Let's start by taking a look at possible anatomical and or physiological rationales. To start with the anatomical rationale, we have to look at the pelvis. The pelvis is a group of fused bones that form an attachment between the lower extremity of the body, the angulation and orientation of the pelvic bones, and the articulation of the sacrum and coccygeals develops into a three-dimensional bowl structure with a junction for the right and the left sides of the pelvis at the pubic symphysis. The arrangement of these attachments and bones between the right and left pelvis allows for each to be able to move as a single unit, such as when we squat and or jump, or independent of each other, which is necessary for walking, skipping, or running. Movement seen in the pelvis commonly is seen with movement of the lower limb, the lower extremities, through a junction of the pelvis bones with the femur at what is commonly referred to as the hip. Because of the need to have a relatively stable body during activity, movements allowed to the hip is constrained. There is very limited flexibility in the ligaments. This keeps the lower extremity tightly anchored to the body that allows for the forces to be easily transferred from the body to the ground and the ground to the body, allowing us to move. The structures of the pelvis and the femur undergo anatomical changes early in life that allows for standing upright and the ability to jump, walk, and run with relative ease. The anatomical changes allow for the gluteal muscles to be positioned to control and stabilize the body in an upright posture and provides the means for the muscles to generate enough mechanical force to allow for jumping, squatting, walking, running. The structure of the pelvis will undergo secondary changes during puberty as growth of the ilium occurs in a male and a female specific pattern. It's this pattern of growth where we start to have a rationalization about anatomical differences that might come into play. For females, the ilium will grow in a more lateral than superior fashion, whereas for the male, the growth of the ilium is more superior than lateral, which means that the female's ilium will grow more towards the outside of the body, more away from the middle point of the body, then it will grow in a vertical growth pattern. Whereas for the males, the males will grow more in a vertical growth pattern, then they will grow in a lateral growth pattern. The result of this growth leads to a wider true pelvis for the females and a narrower true pelvis for the males in comparison to each other. A pattern of growth differences that has the potential for leading to various lower extremity kinematic issues that might be seen when comparing movement of the lower extremities across sexes, males versus females. Yet the differences discussed might seem to be in a generalized body morphology, as we must remember that as with everything else in the human body, the differences are always seen across a continuum with much overlap between the various sexes, meaning 
that we cannot specifically state that the pupil growth pattern can lead to specific anatomical differences seen between males and females, or that there is a expansive difference that is seen between males and females. The largest difference that we tend to look at is how the femur is going to interact with the pelvis that's going to allow us to move around. The femur is one of the three bones of the lower extremity responsible for weight bearing and thus is able to provide for movements. To allow for correct movement, each part of to allow for correct movement of each part of the body during activity, the female, like the pelvis, undergoes a change in angle orientation early in childhood. The change is seen in the area of the bone just below the hip joint, the junction between the pelvis and the femur, in a region anatom anatomically referred to as the neck of the femur. And at the end of the femur, where it aligns with the shin bone, the tibia, in the region referred to as the condyles of the femur. The result of these anatomical changes leads to a rotation of the femur that ensures that the central axis and midpoints of the ground gravity acting on the body, referred to as the center of mass and center of gravity, is kept at a point just in front and just below the pubic symphysis. Based on the changes of the femur, the body will develop an anatomical angulation within the lower extremity. This angulational change is commonly referred to as the Q angle. The Q angle tends to get discussed as it relates to lower body injury risks for females. However, the Q angle is not unique to just females. Kinematically, the differences in the amount of Q angle can be used to determine the relative risk for knee, hip, and back issues for the person, where studies have indicated that having a greater Q angle means needing to have larger stabilizing forces for the muscles around the hip and at the knee during activity, during active movements such as squatting, jumping, or running. The larger muscle actions are especially seen with actions and movements of the patella and the additional mechanical forces that are offered by the patella to the strength necessary to cause movements due to contractions of the quadriceps muscles. Yet studies have shown that differences in angulation of the femur will directly impact the ability to correctly transfer the contraction strength to the mechanical force and cause movements at, as the angle will shift where the patella lies within the groove at the end of the femur between the condyles and will alter the kinematics of the lower extremity, leading to a specific type of knee injury, typically a tendonitis, that develops from irregular pulling on the patella by the muscles of the thighs and the hips, referenced as runner's knee. This irregular pulling that can occur can lead to excessive tightness in individuals with wide Q angles, in the lateral muscles, the muscles to the outside of the thighs, and along a tight band of tissue, referred to as the iliotibial band or the iliotibial tract, that lies on the outside of everybody's thighs. It is this tightness in the iliotibial band and tightness in the lateral parts of the quadriceps muscles that tend to be the culprit in causing the runner's knees issues for individuals with wide Q angles. Along with changes in muscle function, the angulation and growth of the femur can lead to tighter capsular ligaments of the hip in those with larger or wider Q angles. There is a possible difference in the growth of the condylar region 
of the femur, leading to shorter and tighter cruciate ligaments. The increased tightness and the shorter ligaments are an anatomical change meant to keep the hip and knee stable and supported during activity, especially during deceleration movements, movements that are meant to slow the body down to stop active movement. The tightness combined with changes in angle of pull on the muscles from the thighs and the hips can lead to stresses across the knee. The mechanical stress across the knee, sometimes called a valgal stress, can be combined with a rotational force at the junction of the femur and the tibia within the knee that places excessive stress on the cruciate ligaments during deceleration moments. It's this type of stress that will lead to a second type of specific knee injury, referred to as ligamentitis, that can cause knee pains in individuals with larger Q angles. With excessive stress due to either a single traumatic deceleration event, stopping event, or buildup over time of repeated rotational and valgal stress that can be seen with individuals with larger Q angles, we can see a rupture of the cruciate ligament, a torn ligament, in which the most common torn ligament that we'll see would be the anterior cruciate ligament, the ACL. The rupture or tearing of the ACL is commonly seen with excessive deceleration of the body, leading to an excessive rotation or excessive forward shifting of the tibia relative to the femur, placing excessive strain on the ACL. This excessive strain is not related to the Q angle, but instead is related to the ability to control knee movement during the deceleration. The inability to control the deceleration is the anatomical culprit that comes into play leading to ACL injuries. This inability to control deceleration movements and deceleration moments can come about from a single traumatic event or can come about through repeated uncontrolled decelerations that occur over time. While there is no definitive evidence to support the anatomical differences between males and females in either the femur or at the hip to support anatomical differences being the sole culprit, it's time to look at another possible culprit. Another possible culprit that comes into play is the plane surface that females will use relative to their male counterparts. This is especially seen with the use of artificial sports turfs for females relative to their male counterparts. The use of artificial turf has become increasingly common, especially with the introduction of the latest generation of turf fields that seem to mimic natural grass. Yet, there appears to be a pattern based off of what research indicates that activity on the artificial turf leads to more ACL injuries than use of natural turf for a host of reasons that relate back to the anatomy of the knee and the ability to anatomically control hip and knee motion during active movements, in particular deceleration. The injuries on artificial turf often happen because of increased frictional forces between the footwear of the athlete and the artificial turf. This increased friction is passed along through the body based on the kinematic chain into the knee through the motions of the body during play. The interaction between the turf and the foot is greater on the artificial surface than on the natural grass surface, meaning 
that your foot will tend to be stuck in a specific spot on the artificial turf versus what is seen on the grass. An issue that can come about during any type of twisting motion, rapid deceleration moment that can occur within a sport as it places excessive stress on the ACL, leading to a greater relative risk or a ruptured event. A risk that is lessened on natural grass as the foot will be able to glide on the surface more easily than it can on the artificial ground. A similar issue comes about with poorly kept natural grass surfaces as irregularities in the surface will change the kinematic chain, placing excessive stress onto the ankle, knee, and hip of the athlete playing on the poorly kept surface relative to the better kept surface. The irregularities lead to changes in the force applications and changes in the force applications can lead to excessive stress being placed on the joints, on the articulations of the lower extremity of the body while the athlete is at play, placing the vulnerable knee as the weakest spot within the chain and most likely to suffer injury. The last of the three culprits that I would like to look at is the physiology and the training aspects that we use for the female athletes in preparation for their sport. Over the last few decades, soccer, at least for women, has become an increasingly more popular event, leading to increased participation. There is an opinion that differences seen physiologically are based on specific genetic and hormonal differences that exist between males and females. Yet, the differences that we see are not likely due to specific genetic differences as the presence of genes important to athletic performance are seen across and across sexes. While differences can be seen hormonally, the differences seen in hormones related to performance, muscle strength, and training responses are related to the anabolic hormone responses seen in and around training. There are differences seen in the total anabolic hormone responses to training, but the differences elicited between genders are more often discovered in the muscles of the trunk and upper extremity and not in the muscles of the pelvis, hip, and lower extremity, meaning we should not see hormonal response differences and strength training adaptation differences between female and male soccer players. Thus, we need to look at the influence that training windows and selection of training training schedules, and competition schedules have on the possibility for injury and the differences that we might see between males and female soccer players, in particular as relates to knee and especially ACL injuries. Given that a minority of the current soccer training research is about females, and most training designs are reflective of coaches' experiences that tend to rely on male performance and not female performance, along with the influence that distinct physiology and psychology might have on training modalities and methodology, it's very hard to pinpoint specific differences. Yet we do know that the question about the type of training based on physiology should indicate that there should be no difference in how we train, yet training is very different. Female training tends to focus not on goals of speed, strength, and performance, but on goals that relate to technique. Training should focus on goals of performance. And we know that the goals between males and females should be about the same, where the strength and the power and the endurance are similar for playing soccer as a male and for playing soccer as a female. 
Yet there tends to be a difference seen in the psychological drive for coaches to train males and females in a similar fashion. This difference in psychological drive seems to establish change in the magnitude and stresses of a workout, making workouts not equivalent, as it appears that females tend to receive limited strength and conditioning sessions with fewer strength and power exercise and a greater reliance on endurance exercise integrated into their training routine, if there's a training routine at all, or where the female soccer players seem to be forced into needing to train at local fitness centers under tutelage of trainers that may not have the background knowledge and expertise to train athletes versus training people for aesthetics, body image, relative to their male counterparts, resulting in suboptimal performance gains and limiting overall physical development, where despite the inherent skill and desire The discrimination to limit training places the female player at a greater physiological risk for injury relative to the male player. A troubling development, as if we look at studies comparing strength values, females are seen to be similar, if not greater, in strength gains relative to their male counterparts in the muscles that would control knee movement and thus prevent ACL injuries. So what's the take-home message? What can we say about a possible rationale to explain why we are seeing supposedly more ACL injuries in our female soccer players relative to our male soccer players? Well, based on the science of performance, we can see that the injury, especially ACL injury, are not solely due to anatomical differences seen between females and their male counterparts, even if this seems to be the easiest argument to make. The rash of injuries appear to be a combination of interrelated factors, poor conditions for playing, increased use of artificial turfs, or playing on suboptimal performance grass fields, a lack of appropriate conditioning, both of which appear to be due to historical bias against female playing in sports. The other reason that we might be interpreting the increased number of injuries that we see in female athletes could not be due to any of the factors that we talked about, but may simply be due to the fact that we now have more females playing the sport. And whenever we see more individuals playing the sport, we will see more injuries. It may not be a greater percentage. We may not see a larger increase if we break down the number of injuries seen relative to the total number of individuals playing the sport. This may simply be a statistical artifact. Well, I hope you enjoyed the discussion here. There are a number of other parts of this topic and this talk that we will cover in more detail, in particular the bias issue that can come about as relates to differences in genders, historical biases, as relates to performance, and as relates to health issues. 